Let's open in prayer. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for all that you do. For your grace abounding in love towards your elect. For the sacrifice of your son unto your glory and our joy. God, you are supreme in all ways. And yet you have condescended to make a people your own. And for this, we can hardly grasp at a proper gratitude. We love you, Lord. We are in awe of your majesty. And we ask that you would be glorified in this time and make yourself known to those who may not already be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, our normal approach to Sunday morning is to exegetically teach through portions or books of the Bible. We're in between book series at the moment, so we're doing a few standalone sermons leading up to Easter. Our sermon today is titled, God's Word is Truth. You see, we live in a world that is so confused truth that unfortunately, even within the church, we have a desperate need to unpack what truth is and how we live in light of it. In order to do that, I want to lay some helpful groundwork on our canon of Scripture. The canon is a fancy term for the collective 66 books of the Old and New Testament. When we ask what is truth, we must turn to God's word for our answer. Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. What does it mean that the sum of God's word is truth? Well, we understand that the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are God's word. So the inevitable question that will arise is, how did we get this canon, this inspired text from God? Before we dive too deep into that, I'd like to draw your attention to something else that the psalmist does in this passage. The psalmist rightly acknowledges his dependence upon God to know truth. When we begin our apologetic series at our new building, we're going to dig into this more, so you don't want to miss out on that. But this morning, I want to briefly unpack this. It's going to be a summary. You see, there is a precondition necessary for us to have certainty of truth. And that precondition or that necessary requirement is unlimited, exhaustive knowledge. You see, unless you know everything exhaustively, including the past, the present, and the future, you cannot be certain that what you think you know is true. The reason for this precondition is that something you don't know could reveal what you think you know to be incorrect. A simple way I explain this is song lyrics. Almost all of us have thought we knew the lyrics to a song and have sang it confidently until someone in love says, those aren't the words. (laughs) You see, unless we know all things exhaustively, we cannot be certain that the things we know are true. Now, for the human, this is impossible. We're finite. So unless we know someone who does know all things exhaustively, and they reveal truth to us, then we're hopeless. You see, mankind is utterly dependent upon God, who has exhaustive knowledge, in order that we might have any truth at all. However, apart from God, we cannot be certain about anything. We're totally dependent upon him for truth. God knows the past, he knows the present, and he knows the future, because he is all-knowing. God knows every hair on every head. He knows every animal that exists and every life that ends. God knows the very moment your heart began to beat, and he knows the very moment that it will stop. He knows the number, size, and shape of every star in the sky because he has created all things and he rules over them all. 
God is omniscient. There's nothing he does not know. He is omnipresent. There is nowhere that he does not exist. He is omnipotent. He has unlimited power. And he is sovereign. He rules over all things. Our God has also graciously made himself known to us. He has made himself known in a general way through creation, and we see that truth in Romans 1. And he has made himself known in a much deeper way through his word. We can be certain that his revelation is true because he, God, is truth. God cannot lie because it is not part of his nature. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. You see, man is created and man is fallible, but God is not. He is holy, eternal, immutable, and he is truth. He cannot lie. He has no falsehood within him. And Christ Jesus, eternally being truly God, declares himself to be truth. We see this in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, we can only have certain truth through God's revelation of certain truth. The minute that you deny God or suppress the truth of God, as Roman 1 says it, you become dependent upon yourself for truth. When man does this, in their finiteness, they become fools, for they can have zero certainty of anything apart from God. We must see and understand that we are utterly dependent upon God for any truth. Now back to the psalm passage. The scriptures declare that the sum of God's word is truth. God's entire revelation, the sum, all of it, of his word is truth. Outside of God, you are actually only left with subjective feelings about what's true for you. Perhaps a better way to say this is, you cannot account for any truth in your life apart from God. You may be right about something, and it may be true, But apart from God, you cannot say why it's true or how you are certain that it is true. You have no foundation for the truth that you might have. And this brings us to the culture that we live in. The culture we live in has decided that they can have their own truth and that the only real way to live in this world is to allow everyone to have their own sovereign truth and not to tell anyone that their truth is wrong. The problem is this view is self-refuting. It's self-destructive. It does the very thing it says that you can't do. This view says you must not tell anyone their view is wrong, but by saying that, this very view itself is telling me if my view differs, then I am wrong. I hope you see the folly here. By saying such a thing, you are telling me that the truth I hold to is wrong. You see, the truth I hold to is exclusive. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So, of course, if I, if I hold to this view, then out of love, I must share that truth with you. I must tell you you're wrong if you're holding to something else. Of course, if I hold to the culture's worldview, that's the one thing I'm not allowed to do. You see, we have been duped into thinking that this worldview is tolerant and loving. We've also been duped into thinking that this word tolerant is the only word that reveals if you are loving or not. And my aim this morning is not to address the world, but my aim this morning is to address believers within the church. Christian, the biggest problem or the biggest concern I have when it comes to this topic is how much the professing church has adopted this view today. 
There are countless professing Christians who are in the so-called name of love setting down the truth of God's word, the scriptures, to live and act in a way that God himself has never declared or revealed to be loving. You see, our culture's worldview has done such a great job of drenching itself into many professing Christians' worldview that unfortunately, it's having catastrophic effects. Let me unpack this just a little bit more. God has revealed his truth to us most clearly in the scriptures. So what do you suppose is the first thing that people will attack when trying to argue against God's truth? It's his word. Church, this is nothing new. In fact, it's the very thing that Satan did in the garden with Eve. Satan began his temptation by asking Eve to question God. Did God really say? So when as a Christian you live according to this truth, the only truth the world actually has, the first thing people tend to attack is the scriptures. So I thought it would be helpful for us if we looked at one popular attack on the truth of scripture and then gave some very clear reasons why we can trust the canon of scripture that we have today. So first, one of the popular cultural arguments that we have today, and and it's not a new argument, it's like every 20 to 25 years they take this argument down and recycle it, but the argument goes, Christianity in in its early beginnings, right after Christ died, was really a, a hodgepodge of different beliefs. I mean, they all had different books, and they all had different beliefs, and there was no orthodoxy. It was just a big mixture of different things. So how can you claim that the books you have are really God's word? I mean, come on. Now, don't forget, the world's aim is always to get you to question God's word. You see, if we don't have God's word, then there is no objective truth that's truth that exists outside of you and your feelings or desires, there's no objective truth that can correct us. And if there is no objective truth, then we get to be our own gods. It's the same sin that Eve had in the garden. The argument the world makes is that there are all these other books, so surely we can't be confident that the books that we have are truly God's word. What about the Gnostic Gospels or the Apocrypha that the Catholic Church uses? Why do we claim that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the true Gospels and the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas or the like aren't? I'm going to give you four quick reasons why we consider the canonical Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to be God's Word and not the other Gnostic Gospels. Number one. The canonical Gospels are all dated within the first century. They're the earliest writings of the events that took place around Jesus' life. The Gnostic Gospels are all dated in the second century or later, meaning that those who wrote about them could not, it wasn't possible for them to have been eyewitnesses to what Jesus did. The writers of the canonical Gospels were all apostles, or they were writing the testimony of apostles. This gives these Gospels authority that no second century person would have had because they were not there with Christ. This not only gives these Gospels authority, but it makes them available during a time when other eyewitnesses could refute any false accounts. And we have historically zero evidence of the refutation of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. The canonical Gospels, the true Gospels, were written from an account of the eyewitness in a very historical, matter-of-fact writing style. They recorded the facts, and they wrote them down in a clear fashion. There was no embellishment or hint of legend-like writing. When it comes to the Gnostic Gospels, that's the the false Gospels, 
They're filled with embellishment. They have a style very much like that of legend or fantasy. For example, the so-called Gospel of Peter, not, not the Apostle Peter. This was second century, so just some random guy named Peter, I guess. It, it tells us that the resurrection of Christ, at the resurrection, two men come down and help Christ out of the tomb. The only problem is when Christ comes out of the tomb, his head is higher than the clouds. It's some kind of giant Jesus. You can begin to see the embellishment here. And he doesn't come out of the tomb alone. The cross follows him out of the tomb. I don't know how it got in there, but apparently it it floats or walks or something and comes out of the tomb with Jesus. That's not the, the most embellished part. The cross actually speaks. You see, when you read these supposedly missing books, it's not hard to see why they were never considered to be scripture. Fourth, the canonical gospels were recognized very early as authoritative. They were copied and passed on as if they were vital for life. In the earliest recovered list that showed what Christians claimed as God's word, the canonical gospels are always on those lists. The Gnostic gospels never find their way on those lists. This reveals that when they were written, no one really took them seriously. They would have been on those same lists as scripture. Another point is that the Gnostic gospels we're not copied the same way the Gospels that we have in our Scripture were. We have thousands of copies of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. The most popular Gnostic Gospel has three copies that has any type of old dating. What this ultimately shows us is that when people bring these so-called lost Gospels up, and if you haven't heard it, you will, People do bring this up. They're fighting to find a way to cause doubt in all together the word and the authority of God. And it shouldn't surprise us. Our world loves deception and being able to pick what suits their fancy. If they are successful at convincing themselves that we don't have God's word or can't know for sure if what we have is God's word, then they can live however they like. And that really is the pulse of the culture that we live in. Their philosophy is everyone should be allowed to live however they like, so long as what they like doesn't keep me from living how I'd like to. You see, the truth is, if God has spoken, then he has authority and he requires submission. And those are things that our culture despises. My second point in this first part of the sermon today is that the scriptures and God, as he reveals himself through them, provides us with the only consistent foundation for the world that we live in. Here's what I mean. Every professing atheist that I've ever met or seen in a debate will claim that murder is bad. However, according to their worldview, they have no valid reason for thinking this. If we are all just evolved chemical reactions, then when one chemical reacts with another chemical that's reacting and it dies, why is that bad? In fact, for that matter, why is anything bad or good? You see, without an objective standard, we don't have the preconditions necessary for good or bad. So when the atheist claims something to be bad or good, right or wrong, they are borrowing from the Christian worldview to make these claims. According to their worldview, there is only blind and pitiless indifference. That's a quote from Richard Dawkins, a very famous atheist. However, what you'll find out is that atheists don't live life as if there's no value as if there's really only blind and pitiless indifference. And they don't live this way because they are made in the image of God. 
And that is an inescapable truth. You see, God and his word are the necessary preconditions for the life we have and the world we live in. Now, if this is causing questions or a longing to understand these things more, it's all the more reason not to miss our midweek kickoff in June at the new campus. I'm trying to give a shameless plug here. Don't miss it. Scott and I have been preparing for it, and we're really excited about it. So let's continue on. Since God must exist for us to know anything for certain, and God has declared the scriptures to be his word, then we can come confidently to his word and submit our lives to it. We see Jesus do this in the New Testament. Christ is the ultimate revelation of God because he is God. Then when Christ became flesh and dwelt with us, surely we would have seen him correct the Old Testament canon if some part of it was not correct. However, what we see is Christ using the Old Testament scriptures during his temptations and all throughout his ministry. Jesus constantly spoke about how vital God's word is. This alone clears any argumentation about what the Old Testament canon should be. Here are just a few examples. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, It is written, that's him quoting the Old Testament, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here we see Jesus use the Old Testament scriptures to refute the devil during his temptation. Jesus would go on to do it again, even after the devil tried to use those very same scriptures against him. Now, if that example weren't enough, we see in John's gospel at the high priestly prayer, Jesus bring another layer to this truth. It's John 17, starting in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, that they may have my joy. Sorry, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What we see here is Christ praying on behalf of the saints that the Father has given to him. And he says this, he says, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. Essentially, Jesus says, sanctify them in your word. Now, 
In case you think Christ was only referring to the Old Testament, because that's the canon they had at the time, look at the very next verse in the high priestly prayer. John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, this passage reveals that Jesus intended for these men to write down Scripture. And we see the disciples, including the Apostle Peter, refer to their own writings as Scriptures. Second Peter, verses, 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them, speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. If you've read Paul, you can all probably agree to that. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. There is no doubt that Peter wrote this letter intending it to be taken as God's word. And and in this very letter, he says that Paul's writings are also like the other scriptures. These books were not a mistake or some man-made idea. Now, one of the key points that you must consider when it comes to the canon of Scripture is theology. The canonization of Scripture had some very specific guidelines, but above all those guidelines is the theology of the Word of God. What I mean is, do the books of Scripture agree? If there seems to be an inconsistency, can it be in which the way you translate it Or is it irreconcilable? Since we know that God does not contradict himself, then we should be able to reconcile the books that are considered his word. And here's the beauty of our canon. We can do this very clearly and with the utmost confidence. We can look at any of the 66 books in the Christian Bible and without any issues show you their consistency, and their unity. Now, you've got to understand the gravity of this. The Old Testament was written over a millennium. I can't get five high school students to write the same story in one night without contradictions. Yet the Old Testament, which was written over this massive stretch of time, is congruent and clear and historically accurate. In contrast, the New Testament was written in a very short time, written by eyewitnesses and authoritative apostles of Jesus. It was written in a time when eyewitnesses could say, ah, that's totally false. I was there. That didn't happen. It was written in a time when the eyewitnesses could refute it and stop the copying of it. But it was copied as if it was vital. And it was sent out to the whole world. Now, these are not ultimate evidences. God's very own word that he did this, and it's his word, is our ultimate proof. But these are still amazing truths that we can supplement our faith in his word. The Bible is hundreds of thousands of words containing different writing styles by different inspired writers, yet all ultimately teaching and affirming the same truth. Church, that is amazing. That's the hand of God at work. Now, uh, I want to turn the page here, and I hope this short breakdown has been helpful for you understanding uh, why we have the canon that we have, and I hope it really gives you a confidence when you run into these questions and, and these silly ideas that the scripture we have is not God's word. Um, however, with that foundation, with the truth that God's word is truth, 
I want to talk about what that means. What do we do in light of that? So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Timothy chapter 3. Uh, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 16. Very popular verse. I'm sure if you've been in church for any time, you've heard it. 2 Timothy 3.16. We're going to kind of camp out here for the rest of the sermon. There'll be other passages, but they'll be up on the screen. So, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul's writing a letter to his young protege, Timothy, and he warns him about the trials that are going to come, how man will go from bad to worse. And he tells Timothy, but as for you, don't forget what I taught you, and don't forget that the scriptures affirm what I taught you. The very same scriptures that you have been acquainted with since you were a child. He finishes this charge with, all scripture is given. God breathe. It's breathed out from God. Paul is giving Timothy an ultimate standard to trust that the words he was writing and saying were God's very words. And Paul didn't just stop there. He called Timothy to live by these very words, to live and act according to the truth that God has given us his inspired word. So I want to take the rest of our time this morning to look at the different areas that Paul points us to in regards to Scripture's work. He says they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's break that down one at a time. First, God's word is profitable for teaching. What do you aim to do when you teach someone? You want to help them understand something they don't know or that they incorrectly know. Those who are being taught are ignorant of something. It's not a bad word. It just means they don't know. They must be taught the truth about what they are ignorant of in order to learn. You see, when that happens, they're no longer ignorant of that truth. This is what teaching is. Well, the scriptures are profitable for teaching you truth. Is there something you don't know about God? Perhaps about the way he wants you to live, the the very life that he has given you? Then search the scriptures. They're profitable to teach you. Lean on the Bible teachers that help you understand the word of God. Scripture always points us back to God and his glory, which is the very purpose that you and I have been created for. The beauty of God's word is that we can dig and dig for its gold and never come up empty-handed. His truth revealed to us will always be an unending mine of gold if we only dig in to learn. So we must see that we need to be studying the word of God so that it can teach us. Second, God's word is profitable for reproof. Now, the original language literally translates this word as conviction. God's word is profitable to convict. God's word convicts us of sin. Hear me, please. If the God you love doesn't convict you of sin when you are out of line with him, then the God you love is not the God of Scripture. I would submit to you that this conviction is what often keeps us from looking at Scripture. The truth that Scripture convicts us makes us want to avoid it like the plague. You know, if we avoid it, we can just go on pretending that we are okay. How silly is it to do this? The danger of doing this is, if you avoid God's conviction long enough, you will actually suppress the truth that you know and you will end up in hard-hearted rebellion against him. Do not avoid the word of God because you know it will convict you. Rather, allow it to convict you. Seek it out that you may be able to repent and receive the grace upon grace that Sam spoke about last week. Don't run from your conviction. Allow your conviction to produce change in your heart and lead you to right living. 
Third, the scripture is profitable for correction. You see, conviction, when it's responded to appropriately, leads to correction or change. If you are convicted and yet remain in your sin, you are actively hardening your heart. Guys, Scripture constantly warns us about this. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What is God's warning here? If you harden your heart and ignore his conviction, you will not enter his rest, rather you will face his wrath. The passage warns us twice, the second time saying, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Church, we must see God graciously warning men here not to go on hardening your heart. See the plea for your soul and the danger of hard-heartedness being unpacked in this Hebrews passage. See that this hardening leads to separation from God eternally. I'm pleading with you today, along with the scriptures, to stop chasing sinful pleasure and avoiding God's truth. Stop hardening your heart. Instead, allow God's truth to convict you, to turn you to a correct path in line with him. It is only here that you will find the true and lasting pleasure that you're searching for. This is the beauty of the gospel. If we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, we can be confident that the consequences of sin were laid upon him and we are freely forgiven because he has paid the penalty. We don't fight our hard-heartedness with a pull-up-your-bootstraps mentality. We fight it with the truth of the gospel that Christ has paid for the sins of his people and we repent because he has given us faith and redeemed us from those sins already. There is no fear in gospel repentance. Rather, there is an overwhelming joy in the truth that God has saved you apart from yourself. You are free to confess and turn from sin because the same God who saved you is now so utterly precious in your sight that he becomes your motivation away from sin. But hear this warning, please. For those professing Christ, still living as a wise in their own eyes, this gospel joy in God and his truth will become increasingly veiled. There is hardly a more difficult thing that I've experienced in this life than to warn another professing believer whom I love of their sin, only to watch them harden their hearts, deny it, and turn and fall away. The wise in one's own eyes plague is a serious sickness. So how does God's word, the truth that he has revealed to us in scripture, teach us? How does scripture convict us? How does it correct us? Well, one way that's obvious is we read it. Uh, If you don't read it, it's not going to do any of those things. (laughs) But please don't miss the point of the Hebrews passage. It ends with this. Exhort one another every day, 
as long as it is called today. Church, do you see the need to lovingly exhort one another at all times? Let's look at another passage that speaks to this. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Do you guys see the connection? In order for us to grow into mature believers, we need the saints to come alongside of us based on the word of God. We need pastors and teachers to equip us for the work God has prepared for us based on the word of God. We grow up into Christ by the truth being spoken in love based on the only source of truth we have, God's word. If we set down the truth of God's word, we are neither honest nor loving. Instead, we actually hurt those we are declaring to love when we set aside God's truth and declare them to be love declare to be loving them in a way that God has never called loving. When you come to a truth in scripture that convicts you, do you invite your fellow believers in to discuss it with you? When you're convicted of sin, do you confess this to other believers so they can walk with you and hold you up, remind you of your truest need and exhort you? When a brother lovingly reaches out to you with concern for you and attempts to obey God by speaking the truth in love to you, do you receive it with thankfulness and carefulness? Or do you continue on, never looking to the word to see if what this loving brother is trying to show you is indeed true? One of the biggest problems happening inside the modern church today is that there are people who are professing to be believers, and yet they live according to a self-proclaimed idea or subjective desires that do not fall in line with God's word. If this is the case, then what truth are they living according to It's no truth at all. It is indeed the deceitfulness of sin that the Hebrews passage warned us about. The Hebrews passage ended with the phrase that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, when we exhort one another, we are trying to keep the brothers and sisters that we love from being hardened by deceitfulness of sin. And we can only do this if we exhort you according to the truth of God's word. There are far too many professing Christians declaring that an attitude of tolerance of sin or acceptance of sinful practices is loving, even though it is contrary to what God has revealed in his word. You cannot find an inspired passage in scripture where Jesus approves of someone's sin. Even when it's hard, God has been gracious to reveal his truth to us in his word. And therefore, it must be our joy to live according to it. Now, before we get too far off track, let me say this very clearly. We are not saved by what we do or what we don't do. Christian, your salvation is not given to you based upon your performance. It is solely based upon Christ's performance being credited to you, and that is already finished. So why does the scripture warn us about what seems to be the possibility of losing our salvation based upon what we do? It's because the only way 
that your brothers and sisters in Christ can tell if your repentance and faith is true is the way you live. In other words, we cannot see what's going on in your heart where repentance and faith take place. Therefore, the scriptures point us toward the outward effects of the inward heart change as evidence of genuine faith. And this evidence doesn't save you. It only reveals that God has given you a new heart. Now, we are warned that if our heart bears fruit that is bad fruit, that there is still a root of evil or a root of bad in our heart. That's a reflection of not being born again. And this is a gracious warning from God given to us to help us exhort one another to address our own hearts when we are convicted by Scripture. You see, the gospel is not the good news of your obedient heart providing salvation. Rather, the good news of the gospel is that Christ's obedience has purchased salvation for you if you believe in him and repent of your sin. He did this even when you were his enemy. And now, in Christ, we are free to obey in joy because the burden of the penalty of sin has been removed. This is good news. You and I are incapable of earning anything from God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, sent his son to die in our place. Therefore, out of the joy of our hearts, we strive for obedience. Our obedience is a response to his work. It is not a securer of his work. So that was the third part of our Timothy passage. We see God's truth is profitable for teaching, convicting, correcting, and fourth, training in righteousness. When we take all of these things, teaching, conviction, correction, and we rightly respond to them, we are being trained in righteousness. Why does the believer need this training? The same reason an infant needs to be trained as they grow up. We who were in sin and rebellious against God need to be trained or retrained to rightly honor God in all that we do. If God has given you faith and granted you repentance, then this should lead you to a knowledge of the truth, and this truth will set you free to live for God, the very thing you were created to do. Now, practically, this doesn't always come easy. Sanctification is not an easy process. Now, just think about this. Jesus is praying for the believers as he departs bodily from this earth. And he's praying that the Father would sanctify us in his truth. That was one of the passages that we started with today. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. You see, when we get ideas or desires or we think we should be allowed to act a certain way, we must take those subjective ideas and feelings, those things that are within us, to the word of God to see if it is truth or if our flesh is waging war against us and God. When we are acting a certain way and a brother or sister in Christ exhorts us, we should take this exhortation to the scripture to see if there is indeed needed repentance. This is how we become trained in righteousness. We allow the word of God to be our objective truth, and we do all that we can to live according to it. Christian, you must see that God's word is so vital that without what God has revealed to us in his word, we are incomplete and unable to live out every good work that God has prepared for us. When you walk away from truth, you cannot do good, because when you walk away from truth, you deny the God who created you, and the very measuring tool that defines what good is. God defines what is good and loving and true. If you live your life declaring that it is lived according to God and it is loving, but your life is contradicting Scripture, then who's right, you or God? The clear and plain answer is God is right. 
You cannot claim to be loving or doing good if what you're doing contradicts what God has declared is good. If you give up truth and live according to your own feelings or subjective ideas, then you cannot live in wisdom or truth. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you attempt to live outside of God's truthful revelation, then you have become the fool that does not rightly acknowledge God and depend on him for all truth. Training in righteousness is totally dependent upon what God has called righteous. I cannot think of a sadder story than one in which you lived your life thinking and professing that it was lived for God, all the while ignoring what God has said. And instead of living for him, you were actually living in sin. It would be a great tragedy to live your life for God, thinking that God is like you and living according to your subjective feelings rather than according to his objective truth. This is why passages like Matthew chapter 7 are so terrifying. Matthew seven twenty one, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, this is Jesus speaking, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, there will be a people who do this. They will live their life thinking they're living for God, and yet Jesus will call them workers of lawlessness. Why are they workers of lawlessness? If we continue on in Matthew 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. How can we be certain we are not workers of lawlessness? First, we must be certain we are trusting in Christ's finished work, the true gospel. Then, through faith in his finished work, out of an overflow of our love for him, and only then we strive with joyful hearts to hear and do the word of God. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. When Jesus says this, he's calling man to know, understand, and live out their lives according to the scriptures, according to God's word. Why? Because, family, we are utterly, completely dependent upon God for truth. His words are truth. If we step away from them, we act in ignorance. This gets even scarier. If we act in knowing contradiction of what God has said, we are in danger of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and living against God rather than for him. This is why we must grow and be trained in righteousness. This is why we must, in brotherly love, exhort one another every day. I need my brothers and sisters to hold me accountable to God and his word. I need my elders to love me well and correct me when I'm out of line with God. There's simply times when I don't see my sin. There are also times when I do see my sin and I'm out of step. And the loving exhortation of a fellow believer brings the extra weight of conviction needed for me to repent of my actions and take up a new course. Please do not respond to a loving brother 
with a harsh, wise-in-your-own-eyes attitude. The Proverbs say there is more hope for a fool than for a man who is wise in his own eyes. Now, on the other side of that coin, Christian, we must exhort one another in love. We're to speak the truth in love, as our earlier Ephesians passage read. If you are out self-righteously exhorting other believers, then you failed to obey God's word, and you are as unhelpful as those who deny God's word altogether. We must get both sides of this coin correct. We want to walk in line with God because we are dependent upon him for truth. So if you're about to approach a brother and you haven't prayed about your concern, if you haven't asked more mature believers to walk through your concern without being gossipy, if you don't approach your brother with gentleness and respect, making every effort to love them in truth, then you are also not in line with God's word. Fifth and finally, the scripture is profitable to complete the believer and equip them for every good work. Through all the points that the previous passage made, it ends in this, to complete us and to equip us for every good work that God has prepared beforehand. If you didn't catch Sam's sermon last week, I highly encourage you to look it up on our podcast and listen to it. Uh, God really used him well last week, and it was a blessing. The passage he preached on was from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christian, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. God did this beforehand so that when he saved you, they would be ready for you to walk in them. When we take God at his word, when we live according to his word, the truth that he has revealed to us, it will work in us to teach us, to convict us, to correct us, and to build us up in righteousness that we may enjoy, walk in the good works that our gracious Lord has prepared for us before we were even made. God has not saved us so that we might enjoy eternity forever with him, yet live whatever life we have left for ourselves. God has saved us unto a transformed life now that points to the eternal reality of his work in our hearts. We were created along with all things to glorify God. Christians, we do this by growing in our obedience and walking out the work that God has called us to. Unbelievers will glorify God by being the objects of his wrath. They give up truth, and they will be held accountable for it. God's word is truth. If you have accepted anything else in its place, then enjoy, repent, and turn to him. Take up his word and read. Exhort and be exhorted. Grow in your righteousness that you may enjoy God more and more by glorifying him more and more. This is your purpose. It is why God has given you life and why he sustains that life right now. I cannot express how thankful I am for the men and women who speak the truth in love to me so that I may be corrected and properly mature in my Lord. I cannot express how thankful I am that God has blessed us with an objective truth that we can trust Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. God's word is truth. Bow your heads, and I'm going to close in prayer. Father, thank you that though we deserve nothing, you've given us more than we could ever imagine. Though our sinful hearts rebel against you, though we desire to be God ourselves, to, to have our own rules, to do our own things, in your grace and your mercy, you have wrecked our hearts, removed the heart of stone, and placed in our chest the heart of flesh. This is a work that only you can do, Lord. And we are forever grateful for that. 
God, thank you for your word that we don't have to guess or wonder how to live or what is good and bad, that we don't have to have some kind of idea that just meets um, a strange and, and just ethereal standard, but that you have given us your word, that we know what is good or bad, what you call good is good, and what you call bad is bad. And so we have this confident foundation that we can stand on and live by. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.